Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone and welcome back to the History of England, episode 387, Sinews of War. In the last episode, we heard about the aftermath of Turnham Green, where those oyster women of London turned them green. About the king's return to Oxford, where he set up many of the functions of government and the flood of royalists from London began to come in. We heard about the opening salvos in a war that was turning into a series of regional and indeed parish conflict. With the royalists in the lead in the north and west, Parliament with their noses affront in the south and east. And we heard about the failure of Parliament's latest appeal for peace, the death of the Oxford Treaty in early 1643. Now, plot spoiler, we are of course about to launch into a new world of fightiness, into this full and frank exchange of views otherwise known as the English Revolution. But, just to set expectations for this episode, there will not be much of the crack of the musket or boom of the certain time this time. We're going to talk sinews of war people, money, strategy, diplomacy, secret plans and clever tricks, that sort of thing. And also those foundations that allowed people to prosecute the shooting, pushing, shoving and grunting stuff that comes later and, you know, screaming and bleeding, you know. Anyway, next time for that. Let's start with Charles and his hopes and fears. Well, the first point is that, as with all the parties, the king's thinking is already across all three kingdoms. So in Scotland, he's appointed the Marquis of Hamilton now back in favour after that nasty little misunderstanding of the incident in August 1641. You know, the one where Charles thought he'd been plotted against him and decided to throw him into the darkest dungeon to rot. That little misunderstanding. 
Well, that's all in the past now. Hamilton's job now is to make the Covenanters put all that behind them too and make sure all those hideous concessions he'd been forced to make in order to have peace with the Scots yield dividends. He even hoped the Scots might fight for his cause against Parliament. If not, fair enough, but just keep them out of it at all costs. OK, Hamilton? Now, Hamilton actually had a plan to achieve that. As you can appreciate, with all that's gone on, Charles doesn't score highly with the Covenanters on the trust score. But Hamilton was always an optimistic, sunny sort of person. What he's telling Charles is that he can build a royal party with the Scottish magnates. Many of these magnates, of course, support the Covenant wholeheartedly, but their noses had seriously been seriously adjusted by the rise of the common sort in the revolution, the lairds, the burgesses, throughout the whole process. They'd always run Scotland on behalf of the king. Their noses had been put out of joint, and they wanted that control back, if you don't mind very much, and a king in control would help that. In Ireland, Charles has appointed the Earl of Ormond as his official lieutenant right now. There are murmurs he might like to come to an agreement with the Confederacy which has emerged so he could get some Irish troops to come over and help him win the war in England. The plan is nothing but a twinkle in the royal eye right now. For the moment, Charles is pinning his hopes on Scotland, but it's always good to have a plan B. Plan C, though, would have been help from the continent But there's not much to say on that score, sadly. The news there is enlightened self-interest. The Dutch stay impartial, despite the feelings of the ordinary woman in Dam Square. Charles's mum's family in Denmark say, only if he gives the Orkneys back. And even Henrietta Maria's family in France keeps the purse strings tied firmly. Blood appears to be a similar consistency to water at this point. Charles has a government in exile now at Oxford and he establishes two more institutions, a war council and a privy council. The role of the war council will be relatively limited as it happens because it became restricted to the king's army based from Oxford for reasons we'll discuss later. But the privy council, on the other hand, now that was very influential. It met frequently, Charles attended it constantly in Oxford And it was popular amongst moderates in particular as a basis for them to exercise political influence. The likes of Hyde and Viscount Falkland therefore managed to make sure the advice that came from the Privy Council to the King was moderate. By which I don't mean be a doormat. Hyde wanted to defeat Parliament as much as anyone, but he wanted to stick to constitutional rules, to negotiate as far as possible, at very least to make it sure as though it looked that Charles was looking for compromise, and thereby to create splits amongst the parliamentarians by attracting the more moderate peace party that was already emerging, to the point of encouraging a coup against the supporters of war at Westminster. But Charles's advice was never limited to the Privy Council. He had other voices in his ears, and they were more aggressive ones, because he had a royal court too. And here, Rupert was very influential indeed. Rupert led a group we might call the Swordsmen. War, that's what we need, vigorously prosecuted and rammed home, followed by a settlement to be imposed on the rebels who would have to just suck it up and be duly grateful if they remained in possession of their skins. 
Henrietta Maria and her faction, when they arrive in Oxford later this episode, they'll actually agree with this. Crushing military victory, that seems a pretty good way to implement a full absolutist monarchy at the point of a sword. Henrietta Maria was generally opposed to mincing her words with hubby as well. If you make a peace and disband your army before there is an end of this perpetual parliament, I am absolutely resolved to go into France, not being willing again to fall into the hands of these people. Admirably clear, I think we can all agree. So there he was, looking at the world in winter 1642 and planning for the next campaigning season, when the sap would be rising and young men, and indeed women, be ready and willing to go to war and put their lives on the line. What should the strategy be? Well, there are differences of opinion between historians about that. Fancy. Some feel there was no strategy. Some thought that Charles planned a massive pincer movement on London. The Earl of Newcastle would advance from the north, writing sonnets as he came. Ralph Hopton from the south and the southwest. Charles himself up the Thames Valley. A grand plan. In point of fact, just so that you're not disappointed, he doesn't turn out that way. Instead, there are a series of wars around the country with the aim to win each one, extend territory, starve Parliament of income, men and support until they're forced to negotiate. Maybe they were trying to get to London at the same time? Who knows? Because it is a slightly theoretical question. Since Charles never really managed to impose himself on his commanders and establish and drive through a universal strategy. Now, one of the Charles biographies I have at my elbow at this moment uses the title for this period as The Warrior. I have never really thought of Charles as a warrior king, but of course he was. Very much so. A war leader, even if against his own people. Well, if we are looking for a model of Charles as a war leader, it would certainly not be a let-me-get-at-em Richard I type. Rather, I'm looking for suggestions from over-polite general, please, answers on a postcard, because that's really what he turned out to be. Incapable of imposing a strategic vision and making his generals stick to it through thick and through thin, particularly, I have to say, with his flamboyant nephew, Prince Rupert. Here is a letter from Mr Warrior King to his nephew, giving out what really should have been orders. He wrote, recommending, to your consideration, the assisting of the West, and continued, I write not this, to put the thought of Gloucester out of your mind, but only to lay before you all, before you may choose the best. I mean, could you imagine old Nosy or Boney running their campaigns in this way? I mean, I say, old chap, wouldn't like to put you out, but would you mind terribly, if it's not too much bother, to see your way clear? No, no, of course not. As you were, carry on. I mean, really. Although Rupert was the most extreme example of a wildly autonomous commander, I should point out this is effectively Charles's way, his shtick, his jam, the Tao of Charles. He wrote in a similar vein to his commander of the north, not Maximus Decimus Meridius, of course, but William, misfortune to be a poet, Cavendish, Earl of Newcastle. I may propose many things to you, but I will never impose anything on you. Might have been nice if he had said that to the people of the islands, of course. Now, this warrior style doesn't get a good press from all, but one historian at least takes the view that anything else wasn't really possible. There were so many regional ar armies. 
loyalties were so extraordinarily split up and dispersed. There were sub-regional strongmen and militias, town garrisons, so coordinating a nationwide plan was scarcely possible. And his approach did mean that local commanders had great autonomy to respond to local events and conditions, so there is something to be said for it. Nor did Parliament really manage any close coordination either. By default, as much as anything then, the war turned into a series of regional wars, punctuated at key points by major battles or events which swing the scales one way or t'other. Of course, there were many major strategic geographical objectives and Charles was not ignorant of them. To mention a few of the most important then. London, of course, goes without saying, and most would argue that without control of London, Charles was always up against it. But there are others. Bristol and Chester in the West, for example, two very important ports, with access to trade and materiel, but critically access to Ireland, where there's both a war to be fought and help to be gained for Charles. Then York was not only the largest and most influential city in the north, but a nightmare to besiege because of the three rivers that converge on it. And I'd mention Newcastle too, because of its position close to the Scottish border, but also its control of the coal trade to London, which in 1643 was controlled by the king and London was shivering as a result. There are other considerations too. Charles will remain constantly dependent on buying arms and material from abroad because he lacks London and the armour is there. So, the Forest of Dean in the West is particularly important because it's a key source of ironworking. So, that's the King and the Royalists. How does the world look from a parliamentary point of view? It is worth reminding you that Parliament doesn't have a single leader like Charles and won't have one until well into the 1650s, although it did have a supreme military commander in Essex and then more effectively with Fairfax from 1645. I would hate to suggest that the parli English parliamentary leaders were not interested in power. They were, of course, involved in a struggle for power with the king. And money and lands stick to fingers of a not inconsiderable number. But for all of the First Civil War, at very least, it's pretty collegiate. Certainly, if this point needs making, it's nothing like the naked power struggle into which Henry VI's incompetence and Richard of York's ambition turns the Wars of the Roses. Pym and his junto might disagree. War and peace parties split over strategy and control. But this is not about a bid for personal power by and large. It's about a clash of ideologies. There is a drama I'd like to recommend to you called The Devil's Whore. Still available, I think. Look it up. It's called The Devil's Mistress outside the UK. It paints a pretty dim view of the way that women were treated, but... One of the things I like about it is that it's the journey that many people go through together, through all the stages of the revolution, getting increasingly madder as it goes. Many of these people will remain connected and in politics all the way through and beyond, learning and changing all the way, and in the end, getting used to the restoration. Parliament, therefore, established a way of running the war which was suitably sui generis. That is to say, it was run by a committee. The Committee of Safety, which sounds suitably revolutionary given the later one in 1793 in France. 
Now, our version was composed of folks from both the Lords and the Commons and contains many of those names you have been struggling to keep up with. Say and Seal, Essex, John Pym was still preeminent amongst them. There was our favourite country squire, John Hampden, Denzel Hollis, staunch revolutionary and emerging leader of a peace party though, and Henry Martin, architect of the protestation, and also something of a card at Westminster. An anecdote here for a bit of colour, if you don't mind. Henry Martin had a quick wit in debate, but also a reputation for not being able to hold his drink. He'd use that rather sneakily, pretending to nod off at drunk after lunch, and then springing into action at a critical point in the debate, startling everyone and nailing it. Fascinating bloke, Henry Martin, definitely wayward in his personal life, religiously pluralistic and tolerant to the point of being accused of atheism, and the very first person to raise the idea that maybe having one person to rule it all is not the best idea, which would land him in trouble as a closet Republican. But a hard worker, none harder, labouring away on a plethora of committees, including this one, the Committee of Safety, and also one of the first in a line of parliamentarian spymasters in a line leading to the master of them all, Oliver Cromwell's pal, John Thurlow. The ultimate sinew of war is, of course, money. Both sides created a series of regional associations to raise money and control military operations in their particular area. Oddly enough, there's only one of these that really gets mentioned in the histories, which is the Eastern Association of East Anglia and Cambridgeshire, but there are, there are others for Parliament, Northern, Southern, Midlands, so on. I guess the Eastern Association is particularly famous since it has the most resolutely parliamentarian hinterland and also contains a bloke called Oliver Cromwell, appointed Colonel of the Horse by the first boss of the Eastern Association, one Lord Grey. This association would later be led by the Earl of Manchester, with whom Oliver would have his run-ins. Manchester, in particular, was distressed by Cromwell's egalitarian frame of mind. Maybe, being a farmer and relatively low down on the social scale, Cromwell knew and trusted the quality of the men he worked with rather better than Manchester. But Manchester grumbled. He grumbled that Colonel Cromwell, in the raising of his regiment, makes choice of his officers, not such as were soldiers or men of a state, but such as were common men, poor and of mean parentage. Only he would give them the title of godly, precious men. There are a few famous quotes like that, but there's plenty of time for that on Cromwell's Ironsides. Maybe the associations are little mentioned because administration of the counties in terms of tax collection and the administration becomes the task of county committees, which are progressively established in parliamentarian areas and are deeply, deeply unpopular. I mean, who knows a popular taxman? I mean, they are broadly legitimate in that they are elected by Parliament, but in 1659, John Milton, the poet of the public, will advocate a locally elected system to replace them because no one was keen on the existing model. Now, there were two reasons for this. One, and the main one, to be fair, is that the tax burden goes up exponentially. It is one of the deep, deep ironies of the English Revolution, that it leads to a far greater tax burden than Charles could have dreamt of, even if Salisbury's great contract had passed in 1610. 
An even deeper irony is that the assessment system used was based on ship money. Now you can see why the English are so obsessed with irony. How we laughed back then. Ha ha ha. I said two reason. The other was that we English are used to being taxed by posh people. But now the county set were having their collars felt by those lower down the social order than them. Complaints abound with outraged words like rogues. Men not born to it. Men of weak fortune. Insult heaped upon injury. When all is said and done and the cow has jumped over the moon, freedom does not come cheap. Charles, meanwhile, has, of course, to do the same thing. Once more, tradition rules for him, not for him the functional efficiency and innovation of Parliament in this particular case. He tended to go via the old tried and tested routes, the county set, JPs and Lords Lieutenant. The general summary is that the royalist system is a bit more random and disorganised. While we're on money and organisation, there is one very early action by Parliament which I think is very much worth mentioning and doesn't get talked about very much in these histories, which is a bit surprising because it seems to me very significant in social terms. And England can pat itself on the back, if I may, for having Europe's first and most generous system of poor relief as it replaced the chaotic and inadequate private and monastic system that ruled before it. England's revolutionary parliament then also transformed the support given to war-wounded and their families. The background to this is that, like effective poor relief, there is some sort of system established under Elizabeth in 1593 to be able to apply to the parish for support if you were a wounded serviceman. Not if you were dead, of course. And while you might think that's OK because you can't buy a cup of tea and a lardy cake in heaven, of course... The family left behind was an, as much in need of lardy cake as ever, and in such a patriarchal society, widows were in a horribly vulnerable and precarious position in trying to keep the family fed. Support, where it was provided, was usually provided not by the community, but by families. But the situation was often chaotic. Carrie Verney, for example, was widowed by the war three months after she married, leaving a sad, disconsolate widow, great with child, and not a penny in the house, as she wrote. All of that's to say that the death or wounding of a husband in early modern society could result in deepest poverty and hardship for the family they left behind. And the Battle of Edge Hill was the first major conflict, and it shocked everyone. London's hospitals completely failed to cope with the rush of wounded. There were people all over the place begging for money. So... In October 1642, Parliament passed an act. Wounded parliamentary soldiers or their wives, widows or children were eligible for a pension to be provided through their parish and paid for by the state. This was established by ordinance, of course, the king being uh, away. And the act is thoroughly practical, with no grand words and a rather functional hope that this would encourage other young men to fight on the parliamentary side. Despite that, as a motivation, it is nonetheless a very humane innovation, which the royalists did not emulate. Though ironically, on the restoration of the monarchy, it was maintained for 20 years before being deleted, but it was reversed. So it became available only to people who had fought for the royalist side, and all the previous pensioners were rather cruelly cancelled. One more wrinkle 
is that the petitions for aid that survive have all been digitised by the Civil Wars Project, so you can look at them online. Anyway, enough of this soapy stuff. Let's get on with the war by the means. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Now then, as I'm sure you'll agree, Bridlington is the obvious place to start. Bridlington is well known as a seaside resort in the East Riding of Yorkshire, but on the 22nd of February 1643, it was no time for buckets, spades, sun lotion chips and windbreakers because history came to Bridlington in the form of some ships. Ships which contained Henrietta Maria, Queen of England, and her little hound, Mitter. Oh, and 32 cannon, 10,000 small arms and 78 barrels of gunpowder. The results of more work she'd done in pawning her jewels on the continent, her work done, it was time to deliver the shipment herself. Not the first, by the way. Remember that Charles had fought with the outcome of her work at Edge Hill. This time Henrietta Maria was chased by the Admiral of the Navy, Junto leader Warwick, and so she came ashore literally in a hail of bullets. Henrietta Maria was both in Bridlington and in high spirits, which on the face of it is odd, since to the north, at another famous seaside resort, was the parliamentarian Hugh Chumley at Scarborough. And south of her, the parliamentarian and denier of kings, John Hotham, was at Hull. But Henrietta Maria was nonetheless confident. Newcastle, she knew, was there, and had sent soldiers to take her to the capital of the north at York and she proudly named herself Generalissima of the North. And before she set out for York, she received some interesting visitors, which I'm going to tell you about now. The first visitor was said John Hotham, denier of kings and governor of the whole fortress. He came with a sort of neutrality pact. But what became clear to Henrietta Maria was that this hero of the revolution of 1642 was feeling jumpy, as in jumping about what side he might be on and thinking of jumping. He was infuriated by the lack of money he'd been sent by Parliament, frustrated at the lack of agreement with the King, and frankly, between you, me and the gatepost, more than a little out of joint at being subordinated to the upstart Fairfaxes, who were just two-bit, pint-sized gentry as far as he was concerned, and not up to his standard of bloodline. So he was wobbly, jumpy. Secondly, a visitor came in the form of news. Hugh Chumley, hero of the revolution at Scarborough Castle, noted for fresh air and fun, then jumped ship and declared for the king. But third, and third is the charm, the Earl of Antrim came with his calling card and with secret plans and clever tricks. Randall MacDonald, all the way from Ulster. Now Antrim came with a plan so cunning 
that in the words of Blackadder, you could put a tail on it and call it a weasel. Antrim was aware that, as Hamilton had also noted, a group of Scottish magnates, Montrose among them, were increasingly put out of joint by Argyll and the Covenanters' supremacy and the effective removal from government of Scotland's ancient centre of nationhood, the Stuart monarchy. At the same time, there's another ancient feud going on here, a Gaelic ancient feud. Listen up, this is the detail you love so much. So, the MacDonalds in Ulster were a sprig of the MacDonald clan of the Western Isles of Scotland, who had colonised part of Ulster a few generations back. They wanted their MacDonald lands back in Scotland, back from the hated Campbell clan, the family of the Marquis of Argyll, as it so happens, head of the Covenanters. These histories, these enmities, they ran deep, true, hot and old. So, Antrim proposed this to his Queen. He would send his MacDonald clansman, the great warrior Alastair McCullough, to hook up with the Scottish MacDonalds and with Montrose. Together they would raise the king's standard, declare chaos and confusion on the Covenant estate, bring Argyle's government crashing to its knees and restore the Stuart monarchy to its rightful place. Oh, and take back the MacDonald lands from the Campbells for themselves. Did I mention that? Well, Henrietta Maria, I have to tell you, was very keen on the idea. It's not entirely clear how she communicated this to Charles, but he was clearly aware of the plot and he allowed it to sail on, and Antrim left for Ulster and home, well satisfied. This is despite the fact that Charles and Hamilton were in the middle of that tricky negotiation for Argyle and the Covenanters' favour against the English Parliament. In fact... The Scottish commissioners were at that very moment in Oxford, supposedly talking about peace. This was Charles's chance to secure his strategy of Scottish support or neutrality. But hey, who cares about duplicity when you are the rightful king and everyone else is a rebel? The more irons you have in the fire, the more likely, surely, one of them is to get hot. No point keeping your all eggs in one basket now. He therefore comprehensively mucks the Covenant commissioners around. He makes them sit around in anterooms for months, delays, hums and haws. I mean, understandably, actually. Charles has minus enthusiasm for the introduction of the Presbyterian system in England, which is a core part of the Scottish Covenanter security strategy. So they hang around the commissioners until April before they finally leave in high dudgeon, deciding they were getting nowhere with their king and they were unaware that he was planning an invasion anyway. But it wouldn't stay that way, because in May, Antrim was captured by Munro and his new Scots army in Ulster. That's inconvenient, and Henrietta Maria and Charles duly panicked. But Henrietta Maria assured her husband that they'd find nothing in writing from her. Well, maybe not, but they certainly found something, and the news was out. It hit Scotland like a custard pie in the face. Argyll immediately called a convention of estates, basically a mini-parliament, but in this case one without the supposedly essential element of the king. One covenanter wrote that the news about Antrim wakened in all a great fear for our safety and distrust of all the fair words that were or could be given to us. So for Charles. The Covenanter strategy game in Scotland was dead. Long live the Montrose and Antrim strategy in Scotland. 
Rather delightfully, Charles blamed Hamilton for the end of said strategy and threw him into jail for a while, sowing a certain lack, shall we say, of self-awareness. Argyle and the Covenanters now turned to the English Parliament. John Pym had been putting feelers out for Scottish support for some time. And in July 1643, Harry Vane Jr. appeared in Edinburgh at the head of an English delegation to talk Turkey and religion and war, but definitely Turkey. Charles, meanwhile, was turning his thoughts towards Plan B, otherwise known as Ireland and the Confederates at Kilkenny. Maybe the Irish would make a better ally after all than those Scots. Definitely better singers anyway, what with all those cockles and muscles and all that sort of stuff. More than anything, though, Charles wanted Henrietta Maria back with him, at his side, in Oxford, to bring her strength, love and family that gave him such strength. Henrietta Maria, on the other hand, was having way too much fun being Generalissima to hurry home. And she stayed at York for a while before coming south eventually with Newcastle's men and seeing action along the way, including the capture of Burton-on-Trent from Parliament, carried by storm after the town refused to surrender. One writer recorded that inside, the women making bullets while the men fought it out bravely. The following plunder of the town was followed by accusations that many women had been raped and 400 captured soldiers imprisoned for days without food and water. Now, there used to be a tradition that the English Civil War was as civilised a war as was possible in the circumstances and it rarely reaches the depths of the Thirty Years' War, it has to be said. But war is war and numerous brutalities there were on both sides as maybe we'll cover in a specific episode of fun sometime. One of those acts of brutality actually happens as Prince Rupert came north to meet with Henrietta Maria to bring her to Oxford. When Rupert, trained in the arts and practice of the Thirty Years' War, met resistance at Birmingham in April, the town was burned and plundered as a result. However, by July 1643, Henrietta Maria would finally arrive back in Oxford and there were celebrations and pretty speeches at Carfax. Henrietta Maria took up residence at Merton College and all was happiness and all was joy. This is the court that one Margaret Cavendish, future poet, playwright and natural philosopher, will join to be bored into desperation and depression. You can hear more about Margaret if you become a member of the History of England at thehistoryofengland.co.uk. For the avoidance of doubt, Henrietta Maria also brought with her all those munitions that she had bought on the continent. It was the second time she had more than proved her practical worth to the royalist cause. Also, July 1643 would be a crashingly good month for the royalist cause in many other ways, which we'll come to next time. Now, we spoke last time about the Oxford Treaty and we've talked about the Tao of Charles negotiating peace on one side of his mouth, plotting for war on the other side of his mouth. So here's another example. While earnestly discussing the Oxford Treaty, keeping the Earl of Essex and his army usefully in port, he was at the same time plotting and planning to raise a spot of trouble in London. Through 1643, London will gradually empty of many royalist supporters. But in early 1643, some had stayed, and Charles therefore still had hopes that he could split the city of London away from parliamentary cause. 
Many of the richer and more influential aldermen and previous mayors of the city were very unhappy with the religious and social chaos, the disruption to trade, the flood of political pamphlets and worrying talk of equality. In the Oxford Treaty negotiating process, Charles had taken care to call for the arrest of the Puritan mayor, Isaac Pennington, and he described the rebels in the capital as perverted by schismatical illiterate and scandalous preachers. He was by this means making a call to his loyal, disillusioned Londoners. And in January, he sent a courtier on a secret mission into the depths of London to sound out what support he could find, and he duly found supporters and potential conspirators and drew up a commission for one Nicholas, Crisp and other local bufties. His key point of contact was a poet called Edmund Waller, a relative of William the Conqueror Waller, another example, therefore, of a split family. By this time, Charles had also around him quite a coterie of London merchants fleeing the city, no longer quite their thing anymore. I have an image of London as a colander with drips of royalists dribbling their way through the gaps in the newly constructed London lines of communication in to the Chiltern Hills and away down onto the Oxford Plains towards the city and the court. They were of all kinds and estates. The richer had the impetus of substantial calls being made on them for money by Parliament, but family and household loyalties were strong as well. The apprentice William Faithorne wrote years later to his master, remembering those days when he too sneaked out of London, picked his way through the streets and over the hills to Oxford. When the services of the king challenged the duty of his subjects, you prompted me into loyalty. One of the grander fugitives was one Marmaduke Rawdon. So far he'd gone along with the new regime and he'd long been a member of the artillery company as we have previously discussed and a contemporary of the Puritan John Fenn. He had been there at Turnham Green opposing the king but for a while now his mind had been made up and he had simply taken a bit of time to put his affairs in order before he legged it back to the king doing his best to defend his worldly goods from sequestration sending quantities of furniture to a plantation he owned in Barbados, putting property north of London under his son's name, who was then supposed to stay in London, though in the end he too would answer the siren call of duty anyway. When everything was sorted, Marmaduke Rawdon made his last appearance in the Cloth Workers' Hall in January, and by March he was in Oxford, where he took himself to Christchurch and the King's Court and presented himself to the King who knew him well and was very glad to see him, so glad, in fact, that Charles included Rawdon in a secret commission authorising 17 Londoners around him in Oxford to organise an armed rising in London. They would raise a force of 3,000 men to be ready outside London, for when the fire of rebellion was raised inside by those commissioned Edmund Waller and all, and the burning inside London rose high... They would then seize London back for king and country, cry Harry, and all that. Meanwhile, the king's commission was to be smuggled into London and the person who stepped forward for that role was Catherine Stuart. She was something of a rebel anyway, having defied her parents to marry George Stuart, who happened to be the Seigneur d'Aubigny, would you believe? She married him against the wishes of her parents, 
who presumably weren't keen on all that highfalutin French stuff and would have preferred the male equivalent of good English lardy cake or Scottish oat cake. But her French beefcake, or gâteau de boeuf, died on the field of Edgehill and Catherine was given permission by the goodwill and trust of Parliament to come into London to settle her affairs, trusting she'd be up to no naughty business while she was there. But as we know, all is fair in love and war, and concealed in her elaborate hairdo was the King's commission duly delivered to Edmund Waller. Catherine was to prove a super-keen conspirator throughout the civil wars, and as with all conspirators, she loved a code or two. She is said to have sent so many coded letters to her king on the subject of the Royalist Scots that Charles began to put them aside unread on the weary understanding that it would take all day to read them. Anyway, in May then, Waller was ready to act, but before he could light the script, sorry, firework of revolution, the commission was found in his cellar and the whole plot was exposed. As it happens, there was no force of 3,000 men sitting outside London anyway, so the plan never had more than zero chance of success. But that is not to say that the Waller plot had no value, au contraire, may brave. It was dynamite for John Pym. Edmund Waller proved that poets could be more than just dreamers by making the deeply down-to-earth approach of paying 10,000 quid and giving up as much information about fellow conspirators as the authority could wish for just so that he could save his life, which is important, it's true. As a result of this helpful list, two men were hauled out into the light of day. One, Tompkins, was hanged outside his house in Hoban, and the other, Richard Challoner, was strung up outside the old exchange, where Hugh Peters, the preacher, urged him to confess and make his peace before he shuffled off this mortal coil. Once more, the incident made Charles look thoroughly mendacious and duplicitous. At the very time he'd been plotting a violent uprising, he'd been pontificating to the parliamentary commissioners, I am always for peace and more concerned in it than any, being father of my country next under God. John Pym exercised his considerable talents to take full advantage. The peace party in Parliament were also thereby discredited. Mars and Tyre were once more in the ascendant, Irene and Freya cast down, and Essex began at last to trundle his army out into the Thames Valley towards Reading to exercise all the skills Mars had tried to teach him. So, what have we heard today? We've heard that both sides were putting structures and institutions in place on the growing assumption they were now in it for the long haul, including in Parliament's case the promise of sustenance for families who suffered in their service. Charles had burned the boats of alliance with the Scots, demonstrated his fundamental untrustworthiness and proven once, once more with both Scots and English that unlike Gorbachev, this is not a man we can do business with. But Henrietta Maria is home with all those munitions and arms and Charles can now turn to the Irish to find help while Pym and Vane go fishing in Scotland. Next time then, Pinky Promise, we will let Mars out of his stables and ride the horses of war. Until that time, thank you all so much for listening. Do let me know your thoughts on the website or Facebook and all that sort of thing. Tell me how things are going and all that. It is lovely to hear from you. Good luck everyone and have a great week. 